I uh, had a little bit more meat on the bone of the Christmas story that was running through my heart um, earlier last week, and um, I wanted to just kind of on a one-off have an opportunity to just share my pastoral heart and share this beautiful passage of Scripture with you. Matthew 1, uh, verse 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet in Isaiah chapter 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. I was recently watching a TED Talk, of all things, by a uh, woman who has studied the topic of shame extensively. Her name is Brene Brown, and she simply says this, shame is an epidemic. I kind of laugh when I hear that a little bit because I do feel like, especially in 2022, everything's an epidemic. I didn't even know that word until a couple years ago. Now everything's an epidemic. But this was in 2014 that she gave this TED Talk, so she meant it when she said, shame is an epidemic. Brene Brown is a psychologist who has given her life and devotion to one topic, the topic of shame. So a lot of my beginning little notes here at first will come from her TED Talk, actually. Shame is the thought that I am bad. Shame differs from guilt because guilt has to do with what we've done, sorrow for what we've done. So if guilt says, I did bad, then shame says, because I have done bad, guilt, I am bad, shame. There's a real sense to which guilt is easy. Guilt happens all the time. Guilt happens with my little kids often. A lot of times their guilt is easily displayed by their deeds and misdeeds. It happened today where we forced sorrow upon our children and said, you will be sorry for this and you will tell your brother, I am sorry for this, regardless of whether or not you are actually sorry or not. You will do the right thing when it comes to guilt because you have been found guilty. Now, I have no idea whether or not shame actually played into that, but at the same time, guilt can be easy. 
shame is a little bit harder to uproot in our hearts, to get busy with. Shame has two main messages. One, I am never good enough. Or two, who do you think you are? Those are the two messages that shame uses to do its work. Whatever you did in the past, it's never good enough, not as good as the other person, not as good as it should be. Or if you want to do something in the future, well, who do you think you are to do that thing? Who said you are the one to do it? Who's looking for you to do it? Brene Brown eventually says that shame thrives on three main things, secrecy, silence, and judgment. The reality is shame is hard to talk about. Again, guilt can be easy. That can be made public. We can talk about things we've done bad. That can be easily displayed. What is much harder to talk about and to diagnose is our own shame. This feeling of, not that I've done bad, that's easy, but how bad I really am and how deep that feeling goes. Shame is rarely talked about, but is always in operation. It is amazing to me that the story of our Savior, God of the universe, comes to us in a context of shame. It's amazing to me, as Matthew records, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. And then goes on in the next two verses to describe one of the most shameful moments of our Bible. You have a man here who was about to be married, and she now has a baby. It's not his. No one really knows where the baby came from. She's claiming it was God's baby, which is an interesting story to tell. And now he has a problem of shame on his hands. Tonight, I want to talk about the promise of the gospel and our frequent plans of mitigating shame. Our frequent plans to get rid of our shame. So let's look at it. First of all, I want us to see Joseph's plan to get rid of shame. Joseph's plan to get rid of shame. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. What an incredible find. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, but also unwilling to put her to shame, came to a couple resolutions, really began to consider these things. You see, Joseph had a huge problem, a one that we all have. Not that our fiancés are found pregnant, but we have a problem with the reality and inflexibility of God's law. Joseph, being a just man, a man of the law, a man considering God's standard, 
seeking to approach God's law in a very serious way, and from all practical purposes, this idea of justness could reflect that he was actually a really good dude. Not just that he was concerned about the law, but that he actually did the law on a regular basis, was concerned, did it, executed it, was looked upon as a righteous and just man. And so that sounds like a good thing. How is that a problem? Well, because again, his fiancée is now pregnant, and it's not his. The reality is, Joseph's biggest problem is that this child is, in fact, God's child. That is his problem. Because according to the plan of God, now he has been given a context of shame. Quite a conundrum that God has put him in. How do we resolve the inflexibility of God's law and his standard? Standards even in our day that meet us all the time. Standards of prettiness, niceness, modesty, workability, social status. These kinds of standards that approach us. How do we reconcile what we should be with the realities of what we have currently? How do we reconcile God's oughtness with our current setting? This was Joseph's main problem. Of course, he doesn't know at this point that it is God's child, which is a really interesting conundrum. Makes you really wonder what is in the heart of God to raise an unknown problem in Joseph's life. Again, God intentionally put a child in the womb of a certain dude's fiance. We'll come to that and how significant that is. Our first reaction to shame is fear because the law of God is so inflexible. What we begin to see is almost the smile of God in the backdrop of our shame. God is not afraid of our shame. He's not afraid of messing around with our understandings of justness, of right and wrong, in order to come through with promise. God is not afraid of your shame. My friend, he comes into it. He enters right into it. And he comes full of promise. And I promise there is life in the middle of shameful, of shameful moments. But much like you and me, Joseph doesn't hear this, doesn't know this. How could he? And so he begins to consider these things. And actually what we begin to see is that Joseph came up with maybe some New Year's resolutions on this Christmas. You see this in verse 19. He resolved. He made a plan. He came up with an idea. And oh, my friends, isn't this how your heart works? Isn't this the mechanism of lawfulness? Isn't this the mechanism of self-justification and self-salvation? We have a problem on our hands. We have shame on our hands. We have a failure on our hands. How can we resolve the issue? Let us resolve this issue, let us consider what must we do to be saved. 
You see, the reality of God's law and the law of society, the law of nature, the law of us, the law of culture, the law forces us to try to mitigate our shame, to come up with reasons why we can escape it. There are so many cultural norms. Brene Brown brings up this idea of norms, and she actually talks about norms for women and norms for men that most of which create a sense of shame. And she gives four most common reasons for shame for men and women. Listen to this and see if you resonate. Women, here are some norms that you should be abiding by that cause the most amounts of shame, according to Brene and her study, uh, in your life. Norms of be nice, be thin, be modest, and use all resources for the sake of your appearance. Be nice, be thin, be modest, and use all resources for the sake of your appearance. Not just your body, but in the home, at church, in the bedroom. All resources must be used to keep appearance. Men, here are some norms that Brene brings out. Emotional control. Don't be a crybaby. But you also can't be mad. No raging. No rage quitters. Can't take your ball and go home. Be right there in the middle. Don't you dare explode in either direction. Keep it down. The primacy of work, always be working. The pursuit of status, always be climbing. And violence, that wouldn't surprise me. But it makes sense if you really think about it. This is about big muscles and bro, is about what that comes down to. I don't know if it comes into like actual violence. If that's your problem, you can come talk to me. There's no shame in admitting your sin to the pastor, it's okay. But violence, bro, big man. Those are men, those are norms that men and women face often in our lives where if we don't meet these standards, shame abounds. The law forces us to try to mitigate our shame. And when we fail to keep appearances, and we can't stand up against the strong men in our lives or when we seem weak or vulnerable in the mess of our lives as men, the reality is the law forces us then to try to mitigate our shame somehow. But my friends, one thing is, is absolutely sure. Shame is inevitable. The law will do this to you The law will expose your shame. But also, my friend, the reality is the only place the gospel meets you is in your shame. The only place the gospel meets you is in your shame. The law will expose it. It'll be there in that mechanism. But my friends, the oughtness of the law gives way to the blessedness of the gospel as Jesus comes to you in a manger, on a cross, and in an empty tomb, 
embracing the shame of your humanity, of your sin, of your death, and he takes it on himself. And this, my friend, is the end of Joseph's struggle. The plan to get rid of shame gives way to the promise of the gospel. Verse 20, an angel, uh, but as he considered these things, as he was working out his shame mitigation plan, behold, an angel of the Lord shows up and appears to him in a dream. 400 years of abject silence from the voice of God. No prophets, no preachers, no, no one coming in from God's throne. No nice messages, no books being written. And all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord appears to this guy named Joseph and gives him a word. In the middle of his shame, comes and says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Do not fear. 400 years of silence, a man entrapped in shame, not his own, but feels it according to the law, has to find a way out. The angel of the Lord appears to him and says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Don't be afraid of the shame. I know what I'm doing. Don't be afraid of the shame. I'm coming into it. And the promise of the gospel liberates, liberates his heart. And the angel comes to him and says, there is faith over your fear. There is faith over your fear. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Look what I am doing. Look what I'm doing. Don't look at what you're doing or what you've done. Look at what I'm doing. And look what I'm doing in your place. Trust me. Don't fear what it is. The promise of the gospel gives us faith over fear, but it gives us the blessedness of invisibility over visibility. The gospel gives us the gift of invisibility over visibility. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her womb is from me. It has nothing to do with you. It's not your baby. I'm taking you out of the picture. I'm removing the burden from you. This is not your child, though I am giving this child to you and your family to name and to watch and to raise. But it is not your doing. It's quite amazing. He calls, this angel calls Joseph, Joseph, son of David. Which, of course, would, yeah, the Davidic line, the Davidic seed. This is David's seed. This is the seed going back to Genesis 3.15, where God said, 
the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Then he would go to Abraham and he would say, I'm giving you your seed. And remember that as well. That was a dead womb. And look what God was doing in the middle of deadness there. I will make a seed. I will be the seed for this seed. And then, of course, uh, Galatians 4 explains that that seed was Jesus. And then also you have the Davidic seed as well. And all of this comes into play where Joseph is called Joseph, son of David, ringing in this idea of the seed will be Jesus, the seed will be the Messiah, but it's not you. It's not your seed. It's mine. It doesn't happen just like it didn't happen with, with Hagar. It didn't happen through the flesh. It didn't happen through your doing didn't happen through anything you did, has nothing to do with you, it's me. I will fulfill my long-winded promise through me and my actions, Joseph, son of David. But you are removed from the burden of pulling this off. My friends, there is a blessedness that comes from the finished work of Jesus, and it is the blessedness of self-forgetfulness. The blessedness of self-forgetfulness. That you and your life and your family's life and your work life and your appearance life, your Instagram life, your social status life, your bro life, is not about you. It is about God and what he's doing on the basis of promise through Jesus. That is what life is. The promise of the gospel gives us invisibility over visibility. And then it promises us, finally, Jesus over everything. Jesus over everything. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you, I'm giving you this responsibility, you will call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Two big names that the angel of the Lord makes very clear. Jesus over everything else in the middle of your shame. One, Jesus. He will save you from your sin. And my friends, it is finished. Because of the cross of Jesus, God looks at you with the perfect righteousness of his son. Your sins have been paid for. They have been cast as far as the east is from the west buried in the grave of Jesus and left there in hell to rot. All of God's anger has been poured out on him and there's no longer any amount of judgment left for you. Jesus has saved you from your sins. But he is also Emmanuel. He is with you. No qualifications about what that shame is. No qualifications of whether or not you plan to continue walking in that shame. 
No qualifications, asterisks, ifs, or buts about whether or not you will die in that shame. Nothing. His name is Emmanuel. He is with you. This is the blessedness of the gospel. Shame has plans for you. Shame has plans for you, and by golly, you better be about them. Plans like keeping up your appearance. But the gospel has other plans. Where shame would want you to keep your sins, close the door off to the extra bedroom where all your clutter is, hide the weakness of your own emotions and cry in a pillow. The gospel says, come to me. The gospel says, I see into that bedroom. The gospel says, confess your sins so that you may be healed. Shame's plan for you would love to keep you climbing, keep you working, keep you climbing up, seeking social status, trying to get everybody to approve you, everybody to like you, everyone to put a smile on their face whenever you walk around. My friends, the gospel says, no. Go serve. Go to the lowly. Don't climb up. Fall down. Run to the bottom. Find those people. Find sinners. Serve them. Love them. Give up your life for their sake. The gospel allows you and frees you to do that. What we see in Joseph, Joseph's life in the middle of his shame in verse 24, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did exactly as the Lord God had commanded him. He took his wife. He embraced the shame and scandal that the promise of the gospel brings to us, where God himself enters our messiness and allows us to not approve of what we're doing, because that's never God's plan, but the reality is to embrace it. With not, without fear, without intrepidation, but to see what God is doing in the middle of the mess. To embrace gospel realities when life is at its darkest. He did exactly as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he did call his name Jesus. My friend, this is the last we hear of Joseph from the biblical account. This is it. Boom. He disappears. Nothing more significant to be added here. My friend, what a beautiful life to be lost in God, to be lost in the promises of God, to be held on to not what Joseph was able to do and commit to, not his plans for mitigating shame, but trusting that God in the middle of our shame comes in promises us life and then happily obeys into mundane oblivion. My friends, this is what the gospel frees us for. Life doesn't have to be this grand train of excellent morality and awesomeness and Shekinah glory moments. My friend, the gospel works the exact opposite way as we trust in what Jesus has done for us, we begin to 
find shameful places to hang out with broken sinners where we can obey, we can trust what God is doing, we can be at rest, we can be at peace, we can have our sins forgiven, we can walk with other people without fear, and let Jesus take us into glory and oblivion. Let's pray.